Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Cheryl Selman, and welcome to What Women Must Know. Thank you for joining me today for another opportunity to have an empowering and inspiring in-depth conversation. And today we're having a wonderful conversation with Dr. Mary Newport. We're talking about the keto diet for healthy brain aging and Alzheimer's prevention. Um, I just want to say that Mary is such an inspiration and trailblazer, as you will learn. And to learn a little bit more about Mary, she's a medical doctor, graduated from Xavier University and the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. She trained in pediatrics at Children's Hospital Medical Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. And she practiced neonatology to care of sick and premature newborns for 30 years and was founding medical director for two newborn intensive care units in the Tampa Bay area of Florida. More recently, she practiced at the opposite end of the spectrum, providing home hospice care and health risk assessment. In 2008, a ketogenic nutritional intervention with coconut and medium-chain triglyceride oil dramatically helped her husband, Steve Newport, who had early-onset Alzheimer's disease, resulting in nearly four better quality years. Her husband lost his battle in 2016, and Dr. Newport carries on his legacy as an author of four books, an international speaker on ketones, and an alternative fuel for the brain. Uh, Her fourth book, Clearly Keto for Healthy Brain Aging and Alzheimer's Prevention, focuses on whole food, ketogenic, Mediterranean-style diet, and other lifestyle modifications to help maintain brain health and prevent Alzheimer's and other dementias. So, Mary, it's such a pleasure to welcome you to What Women Must Know. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I love it that you uh, that you want to help spread this message. <laughs> oh, it's such an important message as I have delved into the ketogenic world for my own health challenges. It has been a revelation, I have to say. You know, Mary, I don't know how I found out about you. I don't even know if I interviewed you many years ago, but you were on my radar many, many years ago when you were oh. writing about helping your husband. Um, so mm-hmm. it's uh, it's wonderful that, I don't know, we've come full circle and you're here helping me and uh, helping the world understand <laughs> why the ketogenic diet is so profound. And if people listening do not know about the ketogenic diet but have various health challenges of their own, then you really want to listen Mm -hmm. to our conversation today. So, Mary, can we go back to the beginning? Let's talk about your journey and how you uh, found your way trying to support your husband at the time to deal with his health challenges, with his dementia, and what it led to, which has now changed your life. You know, this is your this is your real spiritual work right now in getting this message out and writing all your books. Yeah, yeah. So um, I had I worked in hospitals. I worked in newborn intensive care units, and my husband was able to work as an accountant and manager of my practice from home. And which was great for our kids. He was there for them uh, when I was working. And but he was uh, when he was about 51 years old, he started having symptoms that were kind of strange. Memory, he'd forget appointments and that type of thing. And 
but it got worse and worse, and, and he started forgetting if he'd been to the bank and the post office, and he was only 51 at this point, which I thought that was really strange. I wouldn't forget that. And then he started misplacing mail and just a lot of memory issues. So he saw a neuropsychiatrist who mentioned dementia, but he said more likely it was depression. Steve was quite depressed at that point. And um, it turned out he was depressed because he knew what he'd been able to do and that he was struggling to still do these same things. His accounting skills were starting to um, erode. Um, he wasn't doing so well. He'd get, be late filing tax returns and things like that. And so um, he was on an antidepressant for a few years. And then when he was 54, he was continuing to decline. And he was tested specifically for dementia and found that that, in fact, was what was going on and officially diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease when he was 54. So that's quite young. Under 65 is considered early onset, and he was only 54. So, you know, our future started looking very bleak at that point. <laughs> um, and the average age, you know, from diagnosis, to passing away from Alzheimer's is about seven years, and it tends to be even earlier for people who have early onset, you know, more quickly. So, um, I, you know, basically just started looking for anything and everything that might possibly help him and constantly researching Alzheimer's disease. And between, well, by like 2006, for example, when he was 56, he could no longer drive. He couldn't even turn on a computer or use a calculator. And he had been on a computer like all day, every day, you know, as an accountant. So it was really obvious that he was going downhill quickly and he had lost some weight. He wasn't eating much. And um, so I happened upon, we got lucky, <laughs> we thought, that two clinical trials had come to our area. And they were two different drugs. They were at two different locations. And um, they both were aimed at removing the beta amyloid plaques from the brain. People who are familiar with Alzheimer's at all, you hear about plaques and tangles. And these drugs were supposed to help remove the plaques and that that would hopefully improve things. So it looked very hopeful. Sign them up to screen for these clinical trials. And the night before the first, I was on the Internet, looking for the risks and benefits of these two drugs, just in case he got accepted into both studies, then we would have to choose. So a press release pops up, and it had one of those drugs in it, but it also had a medical food that was called AC1202 that claimed to improve the memory of half the people with Alzheimer's that took it, memory and cognition. And it was just a single dose for one of their studies that um, people responded um, and then they did a study that went for 90 days, extended to six months for many people. And again, almost half the people had improvement in their memory and cognition. And the Alzheimer's drugs never say that. They never claim to have improvement in cognition or memory. They only claim to slowly decline. So this was really exciting, um, but it didn't say what it was or how it worked. So I was able to get their patent application. And I learned from it that it was medium-chain triglyceride oil. And because I am a newborn specialist, I knew exactly what that was. We used to um, add it to the feedings of our tiniest preemies, babies that were under two pounds. We'd add a little bit to each feeding, and they'd 
gain weight faster and go home faster. So um, I thought, well, this is really interesting. Then, then they started adding it to infant formulas. So it's basically in all premature infant formulas, this MCT oil, and it's in, um, well, as coconut oil, which I found out the MCT oil is extracted from, coconut oil is in almost every commercial infant formula in the world. <laughs> every place that I've looked so far. Um, mm. And the reason that they do that is because human breast milk has medium-chain triglycerides in it. So they're trying to mimic the fats that are in human breast milk when they create an infant formula. So anyway, the MCTs, the interesting thing about this particular oil is that when you consume it, no matter what you eat, part of it will convert to ketones. And ketones are very tiny molecules. They are smaller than the glucose molecule, but they are an alternative fuel for the brain. And um, this was discovered in the late 1960s. They did studies of people, like starvation studies. And there was a nurse who, um, they, her, the first patient that they discovered this on was a nurse who needed to lose a lot of weight. They brought her in the hospital. They just put her on, um, they gave her water and uh, salt tablets and vitamins and nothing for 40 days. <laughs> so that's quite a long fast. And she lost a lot of weight, but they measured all the different fuels, you know, from, and they were able to, uh, they discovered basically that her brain was able to survive that long because ketones were, were had replaced glucose as a predominant fuel for the brain. About 60% of the energy, uh, the fuel um, going to her brain was ketones. And um, so ketones and glucose, kind of enter the same pathway to make an energy molecule called ATP that powers basically all of our cells, nearly all. And um, this is important in Alzheimer's disease because people um, with Alzheimer's have areas of the brain that don't take up glucose normally. Every cell needs fuel, and glucose is the predominant fuel for people just eating a typical higher-carb diet. So um, a group in Canada have now been able to show with ketone and glucose PET scans that ketones are taken up normally, even in the areas of the brain that are affected by Alzheimer's, which explains why taking MCT oil, which converts to ketones, um, could help somebody with Alzheimer's. The brain can use ketones in place of glucose, <clears throat> you know, to provide this fuel. So it all made sense to me, this whole thing. I'm like, wow, this is the basis of this is it really makes sense. And um, But I'm reading this online. Um, you know, he's screening in the morning at 9 a.m. for a clinical trial, and it's about 1 a.m. <laughs> so I didn't have time to go out and do anything about it. Um, so we go for the clinical uh, screening, you know, for the clinical trial. And he did terrible <laughs> on the um, mini metal status exam test. He needed to get a score of at least 16 out of 30 points to qualify for the study. They wanted people with mild to moderate Alzheimer's. And he, he got only a score of 14. He needed 16. So we were extremely disappointed. Uh, the doctor had him draw a clock, which is a standard test for Alzheimer's. And instead of drawing a big circle with numbers, he drew a few little small circles and a few little numbers 
and very random, very disorganized. And the doctor told me that he was on the verge of severe Alzheimer's. And I really knew that, but to see it visually like that was really distressing. And so I thought, okay, I didn't know that I could actually get MCT oil on the shelf. And, um, but I had read in the patent application that it was extracted from coconut oil. So we picked up some coconut oil on the way home, and then I was able to find the fatty acid composition of the coconut oil, figure out how much of it was medium-chain triglycerides, and then I was able to calculate how much coconut oil he would need to take to equal the dose that they were using for the medical food. And um, I came up to, they were using 20 grams with 20 ml um, and of MCT oil, and this worked out to like 35 grams or 35 mLs of coconut oil, which is a little over two tablespoons. So the next day, Steve was, again, going to screen for a clinical trial in a different location, but it was in the early afternoon at 1 p.m. So um, I gave him this little over two tablespoons of coconut oil, put it in oatmeal because coconut oil is a little semi-solid at room temperature, and um, he ate it. I ate it, too. I got indigestion. He was fine. <laughs> and um, we went for the second screening. And this time, he gained four points, and he qualified for the study. And it was quite a shock. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I thought, did we just really – he got, like, 18 out of 30 points. And he had – this time, he remembered the day of the week, which he couldn't remember the day before. And we're in a different day, different location. And he knew the city we were in, the floor he was in, and the institution. I wasn't there when he took the test. They took him away to do it. Um, and he gained, you know, four points. So I thought, did we just really get lucky? <laughs> it's really unusual to have a difference of four points on that test from one day to the next. And um, or was it this? Was it the coconut oil? And so I started giving it to him every morning. And... Then I started, um, I thought, well, in the patent application, the MCT oil, the ketone levels increased to like 0.5 to 0.9 millimoles, um, which, uh, I mean, uh, people listening probably may not be familiar with the measurements, but that's relatively low, um, a low level of ketones. Um, but the ketone levels were back to baseline after three hours. And I thought, well, wait a minute, your brain needs, fuel 24-7, not just for three out of 24 hours. So I thought it would make sense to just start incorporating coconut oil into all of our meals. And so I got recipes, galore, cookbooks. I started learning everything I could about coconut oil and about ketones. And we just started, you know, uh, consuming it throughout the day. And I made sure he always had that little over two tablespoons for breakfast. And But what we saw was every day, it was real obvious by the fourth or fifth day that something had happened, something had changed. And he said it was like a light bulb came on in his head the the day he started the coconut oil. So, um, but, you know, for example, he would be very sluggish in the morning. He would walk very slow, very stiff gait, too. He, it turned out he also had Lewy body dementia. He donated his brain, and he had Alzheimer's and Lewy bodies very similar to Parkinson's disease and some of the symptoms. Mm-hmm. And so he would walk very stiffly. He couldn't pick up his feet and run. And and um, he had tremors. He had a tremor in his hand when he would try to eat. He would, when he would speak, his jaw would start to tremor. And 
those were things that that improved very quickly. The tremors, you know, uh, he would have coconut oil in the morning, and the tremor would be gone after 20 or 30 minutes in his hand, and we never saw the jaw tremor come back. <laughs> it was quite mm-hmm. interesting, mm-hmm. and he, um, before this, he would, he could barely, he really wasn't talking much in the morning, and he had a lot of trouble finishing a sentence, and you know, he was much more animated in his facial expressions, and he started uh, joking, and he started whistling. He used to whistle these medleys of songs, and he started whistling again, and he just started feeling better, and he told me that he felt like um, he had a future again, that his mood, you know, was so much better. And um, so, you know, we looked at each other around the fifth day and said, something has changed for the better. This is, this, there's something to this. So we, we basically just kept it going, and I kept researching everything I could. And um, I contacted Dr. Richard Beach this first week. Um, at, he was a, a world expert at the NIH on ketones. He's an MD-PhD. He passed away at age 84, still working for the NIH, right, at the beginning of 2020, sadly. But um, he had been developing a ketone ester, and he'd been working on this since the mid-1990s. <laughs> so we're, you know, over 20 years later, um, and this is in 2008 that this happened with Steve with the coconut oil. Um, you know, he still hadn't um, gotten it tested. He couldn't get funding, you know, from the NIH um, to do the testing. I guess it was about 13 or 14 years after he started developing it. Um, he was just getting enough to do some animal studies in the lab, and but they had were doing toxicity testing, you know, for people and all that. That was all kind of in the works at the time that I first started talking to him, and he told me he just didn't really think that ketone levels from coconut or MCT oil would be high enough to help somebody with Alzheimer's. And But I knew that something was happening. And around two weeks, Steve drew another clock. And this time, it was a full circle. It had all the numbers were there. It was messy. He had a whole bunch of lines going across the clock. And he told me later he was trying to line up the numbers across from each other to make it neater. But it looked like there were like a whole bunch of hands on the clock or something. But there was, uh, you know, um, something to his madness there, you know, with trying to be organized about drawing the clock and just a huge improvement. So I faxed those to Dr. Beach and he called me and he said, well, this is unexpected. And then he got really interested in this. He started sending me his hypothesis papers and he put me in touch with other ketone researchers. Um, that had been writing with him. They were all very elderly men at this point, but they were, you know, for example, Dr. Theodore Van Italy and Dr. Sammy Hashem, they were the, the men in the 1960s who had discovered that MCT oil converts ketones. And Dr. George Cahill, who had done the experiments to find that starvation, that the brain begins to use ketones, that breaks down fat and starts using ketones um, during prolonged starvation, you know, so I got to speak with these men, and they were sending me all kinds of um, scientific articles about all of this, and it was just quite um, an exciting experience, but, you know, my husband just steadily improved. Like, at two months, he could tie his shoes again, and you think about how severely affected he was if he couldn't tie his shoes, you know, something most children can do by the time they're five years old, and 
and he was completely walking normally at that point and talking so much better and he um at about three and a half months he just announced one day that he could read again and but you know i was pushing the coconut oil up and also started adding mct oil you know probably about six to eight weeks after we started the coconut oil i thought with the mct if i mixed it that he could get higher ketone levels but still get the benefits of the coconut oil um i just always felt that there was something he responded so dramatically to it that there must be something possibly more than just the ketones that had something to do with that so i just started mixing the two oils together and it, it worked really well because it was liquid at room temperature you could use it in almost any food hot or cold so um and then just increasing how much he was getting so May, June, July, about four months later, he was taking about two to three tablespoons with each meal. It was a lot of fat every day. And um, he was cutting way back. We were already eating a Mediterranean diet for a couple of years, you know, so it was already lower carb than the average diet and whole grains, no refined grains, no refined sugar, any of that. But um, he had been eating a whole lot of fruit, and he bas- he basically lost interest in eating so much fruit. I kind of feel like his brain was uh, craving glucose, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And he just started leaving the pasta, rice, bread. You know, he was just leaving it. He wasn't eating it. And he was on so much fat that he basically was on a ketogenic diet. And we didn't have a ketone beater available at that point to be able to prove it, but you know, I think that he, because of how much fat he was eating and how little carbs, that he was effectively on a ketogenic diet by that time. But, you know, he'd be, you know, just announced one day that he could read. This is about three and a half months mm-hmm. after we started the coconut oil. And I said, well, why couldn't you read? He said that um, the words would like, he said it was like, he described it literally as, like satellite breakup on your TV, <laughs> which that was mm-hmm. in and of itself to be able to describe it that way. He said the words would break up and move around on the page, what he was trying to read, and that that had stopped, and now he could read again. And it, that was really quite amazing. And um, But he just kind of continued to improve during that first, like, nine to ten months. He started, you know, comprehending what he was reading better, and then – around nine or 10 months, he'd remember what he had read earlier in the day and tell me something about it. So, um, and he was doing so much better. He was able to volunteer at the hospital that I worked at. He uh, came and worked in the um, supply warehouse. He would help with delivering uh, supplies and putting stickers on supplies and things like that, which made him feel really, really useful again. So that's how I got interested in keto. The, um, the long version, I guess. <laughs> you know, that that must have felt like such a miracle that you were, oh. you know, introduced to that was able to so profoundly uh, change and reverse the conditions. And at that time, no one really knew much about the keto diet anyway. It was, no. You were really right. pioneering. You were really pioneering. Yeah. So, um so do you think, as we talk about Alzheimer's and dementia and, and many other issues that are, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that are improved by a ketogenic diet, so is the overuse of carbohydrates in our diet, do you think that that's a driver to dementia and Alzheimer's these days? 
I do think that. I do think that. Um, we we used to be told, <laughs> like, if you wanted to to lose weight, I still remember this when I was a teenager. This would have been in the 1960s. My pediatrician, you know, I w- was always struggling with about eight or ten pounds, you know, and eating a whole lot of ultra-processed foods, a whole lot of trans fats, shortenings, margarines, all of this was kind of what my family was eating. And we'd have desserts, we'd have ice cream a lot, I mean, all of that. But he would say, you know, to help me lose weight, he would say, cut out the sweets and the starchy foods, is what he would say, which basically would, he would say, eat a low-carb diet. And then um, around 19, you know, 61, the American Heart Association started telling us we should eat a low-fat diet and replace saturated fat with polyunsaturated mm-hmm. fat. I mean, that was, um, mm-hmm. it was a message that started coming through long and clear, you know, loud and clear in the U.S. And we started seeing all these low-fat snacks, desserts, cookies, that type of thing appearing on the shelves. But they were very high in sugar, and we were told to drink skim milk. And that's, you know, I started, I went from drinking whole milk to skim milk. And, and um, but, you know, when you look at what's happened since those low-fat guidelines came in, is that, you know, people have gotten heavier and heavier. Um, obesity's become a huge problem. And this is throughout the world, too, especially where the Western diet's been adopted. <laughs> And um, diabetes has become very prominent. I mean, there's some islands in the Pacific that, you know, they they get a lot of um, Western foods coming into them. Their their rate of diabetes in adults is about 27%. It's huge. Uh, the U.S. is about 11% of adults have diabetes, and many more have prediabetes. And this problem, you know, it's <laughs> nobody – I mean, you don't hear – anyone coming out and saying, this is definitely caused by eating too much sugar. But <laughs> the thing is, when you cut back on the carbohydrates, um, if, uh, a ketogenic diet can actually get people with type 2 diabetes completely into remission. They can get completely off their insulin, their medications, and get their hemoglobin A1C and their fasting blood sugar back to normal, completely back to normal with the ketogenic diet. So that's it. I mean, if the diet can fix it, it makes you think that a diet is causing it. <laughs> you know, a poor diet is causing yeah, it. And and, very and, high, yeah. And, and I think it's worth reiterating so people can hear this message loud and clear. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. Uh, guidelines that we've been given about eating, mm-hmm. you know, low fat and more carbs mm-hmm. and more processed food mm-hmm. is a huge, gigantic mistake. It's the it's a biggest thing that ever mm-hmm. could have been offered to uh, people around the mm-hmm. world and and, you know, and and then being flooded with all these processed foods and carbs and low low fat. Um, it, yeah. it actually was the greatest recipe for disaster to the health of, of our country and, and countries around the world. I see mm-hmm. it here in Australia. Countries around the world. Yeah. Around the yeah. World. Alzheimer's. Around the world. Yeah. All, yeah. Yeah. Alzheimer's is the leading cause of death for women in Australia. <laughs> it's the leading yeah. cause of death. Yeah, Heart disease, so, I think, is still number one for men, but for women, it's Alzheimer's disease. So, and, so because you know, we have because we have 
veered away from eating in traditional mm-hmm. ways that included mm-hmm. more fats, which we have mm-hmm. believed to, you know, we see them as being demonized by the, the recommendations, mm-hmm. but natural fats are the key to life and key to the functioning of the brain and key to optimize mm-hmm. metabolism. So there's a lot of healing that has to happen to turn people's belief systems around and give up the carbs. Right. Give up the fruits, mm-hmm. give up the bread, which are addictive, mm-hmm. addictive. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had Robert Lustig mm-hmm. on this show, and he just raves about how addictive all these foods are. Yeah, and, um, yeah his book, you know, his book Metabolical right? is awesome. If people haven't read it, it's called Metabolic, his book. And it's um, when I read this, I thought, oh, my gosh, that's exactly how I've been thinking about this, you know, for quite a while, too, you know. Maybe to get back to a whole food diet and away from all the processed foods. I mean, one of the things that a lot of processed foods have in common is fructose, <laughs> um, high fructose corn syrup. And a lot of people don't realize, they, they think like that if your triglycerides are elevated in your blood, you know, they think it's from fat, but it's not. It's from sugar. It's from the excessive sugar and fructose is converted to triglycerides. Um, so, it's very inflammatory too, highly inflammatory, and um, there are these. It's called um, advanced glycation end products. But you know, sugar when your blood sugar levels chronically elevated, the sugar will combine with proteins and fats to make these very sticky, harmful substances called advanced glycation end products or AGEs which is perfect because they age you, you know, that's an easy way to remember it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, these, you know, it can cause inflammation in every tissue in the body, including in the brain, you know. So, um, you know, people with Alzheimer's, they, one of the, you know, the big reason that they can't get glucose into areas of the brain is because those parts of the brain have developed insulin resistance, which is what's going on in type 2 diabetes as well and people with mm. prediabetes have insulin resistance an awful lot of people have prediabetes and they they don't know it <laughs> they're not tested properly for it you know fasting blood sugar isn't enough to test somebody for insulin resistance and um you know i i wish more doctors would routinely screen their patients with like fasting insulin levels but it's usually very very high in somebody that has insulin resistance and Hemoglobin A1C, which gives you a better idea of what the average glucose is over a few months. I know you know that, but a lot of people listening might not. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, you know, people just aren't screened well for it. But in the United States, it's estimated that by age 75, three-quarters of people either have diabetes or prediabetes. <laughs> three-quarters, you know. But, um, and yeah, this is the age when Alzheimer's starts showing up. Wait, just give that statistic again because it's shocking. It's shocking. Yeah. It's shocking. Three yeah. quarters? Yeah. Three quarters of people in the U.S. who are age 75 have either diabetes or prediabetes at age 75. And that's all caused by our, our choice of diet. That's, that's, that's yeah. It's, right. And it, it could be avoided, you know, by eating a more whole food diet and reducing, you know, getting rid of these refined flours and sugars and uh, especially fructose and, um, 
you're just eating a more traditional, like you say, a traditional whole food diet, like what our great-grandparents used to eat. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Our grandparents exactly. in some cases, <laughs> like my grandparents. <laughs> exactly. You know. Um, <laughs> you know, Mary, you were just at this uh, conference you were telling me about that happened, this metabolic yeah. conference. Um, what, yeah. From that conference and from all the speakers that were speaking about why you want to en- enhance your metabolic function on the ketogenic diet, what mm-hmm. are some of the health issues that can mm-hmm. be either improved or reversed if people mm-hmm. went on this ketogenic diet, brought more of the healthy fats, not the seed oils, but the coconut oils, the MCT oils, just the fat, mm-hmm. butter, mm-hmm. things like that, that, you know, fatty cuts of meat. What, what, and cut out the, and, and, and it's called a low carb, you know, a low carb diet as well. Cut out all the carbs, mm-hmm. cut out all the carbs, mm-hmm. um, which includes fruit, by the way. Um, what yeah. uh, what are, what what things are they finding that are being what health conditions are are reversed when people choose to increase their their ketones or burn ketones for energy rather than sugar and glucose? Yeah, yeah. So um, it's incredible how many different well metabolic disorders respond to a ketogenic diet. Um, so this is the Metabolic Health Summit. Uh, you can look at them at Metabolic Health summit.com. Um, they just had a conference. They recorded it all. It's going to be available. It might already be available, you know, for people to be able to to watch it online, um, the recordings. But um, the original, the ketogenic diet was originally applied to people uh, who, it was adults and children in the very beginning who had um, epilepsy that was not responding to medication. And I mean, some people with epilepsy you know, children even, you know, will have 90 or 100 seizures a day. I mean, mm. it, so, it can be so severe. And back in 1921, uh, there was a pediatrician and an endocrinologist who they, um, pre- previously they were using, for type 1 diabetes and for epilepsy, they would use fasting as a treatment. And um, it could stop seizures. But you can only fast for so long. It would help control type 1 diabetes. But, again, you know, you can only fast for so long, and then you you have to eat. Um, so but people with type 1 diabetes, for example, they could live another year if they did, like, this fasting, you know, periodic fasting. Um, but they discovered that if you eat a very high-fat diet, it mimics um, fasting, and it – and that it increases ketones and it lowers blood glucose. And these are things they discovered in 1921, and it was very effective in controlling seizures and sometimes even completely eliminating seizures in children that were having numerous seizures every day. They would, about 25% would completely stop having seizures, and another close to 50% would have a reduction in their seizures by 50 to 90%, you know, which is a big deal if you're having that many seizures. Um, and you know, this would happen in adults, too. And they started using it also for type 1 diabetes, a ketogenic diet. But then insulin came in, became, was invented and found that that, that, that was, you know, could help control type 1 diabetes. So the um, ketogenic diet kind of went by the wayside for diabetes. But it continued all that time for epilepsy. Um, but as the drugs, as more and more anticonvulsant drugs, became available, like in the 1940s, 1950s, 
the ketogenic diet kind of went on the back burner. Um, it was still being used at Johns Hopkins uh, Hospital. They, they maintained it that whole time. They had a program there. They would bring children in the hospital. They would fast them with, like, an intravenous fluid going for about 24, 48 hours. A lot of the children would completely stop having seizures just during that fast. Then they would put them on a very high-fat diet. So it's basically been used for epilepsy for 100 years. So this is one area that they talk about. And, you know, there are children with autism that have epilepsy, but children with autism with and without epilepsy respond to it. Um, people with, it's being studied for Alzheimer's disease. So since this happened with my husband, there have been several studies now of ketogenic diets for Alzheimer's. And, uh, for example, one, one of them was a study with the Mediterranean diet, but made keto by increasing the fat, decreasing the carbs, and they had really good results. They they compared it. Um, the people would be on that diet for eight weeks, and then they'd uh, eat their own diet for a few weeks, and then they would go on the American Heart Association diet, the low-fat diet, for eight weeks. <laughs> and they saw a much bigger improvement. And all the Alzheimer's markers of the disease, you know, imaging, they saw increased um, uptake, energy in the brain. Um, it improved that. Um and just certain blood markers and spinal fluid markers improved on that diet, but not on the American Heart Association diet. Um, and there's another one. Um, it was a relatively small study, and they're doing a bigger study now of the uh, ketogenic diet. It's called the MCT oil modified ketogenic diet. If you add MCT oil to the diet, it helps maintain higher ketone levels more consistently and it allows a little bit more carbohydrate in the diet than if you're just on this 90% fat version, you know, of the diet. Um, so um, that one had and really good results. Mary, I, Mary huh? I think the other thing that, that um, you, we want to emphasize for people listening mm -hmm. who are trying to lose weight because the, the carbohydrate, high-carbohydrate diet, the ultra-processed mm -hmm. foods, the sugars, the fructose, all of that are just, all those foods are contributing to being overweight and obese, and then all, all the inflammation that happens. Yeah. So consider a ketogenic yeah. diet if you want to lose weight and maintain yeah. muscle mass yeah. as well, right? And, yeah. And yeah, they talk about this at the conference. Yeah, there were several um, discussions of that, you know, at the conference of um, optimum, um, you know, basically for obesity for optimizing your general health, <laughs> athletic performance is another area, you know, athletes really benefit from this. But, you know, the, the thing about eating a high sugar diet is, especially if it's a lot of refined sugar, is that it increases the insulin level. And when your insulin level is up, insulin puts, it, it converts basically uh, glucose, it, it'll convert whatever excess calories and glucose to fat. And it's, it causes fat to be stored in your body. And as long as the insulin levels are high, it prevents the release of the fat <laughs> from the body. So you can be trying, you can eat a very low fat, you know, high carb diet and, you know, your insulin levels could be up all the time and it's defeating the purpose because as long as your insulin levels high because you keep eating so much sugar, you know, it will prevent your fat from releasing the fatty acids to get rid of it. So, I think that this is probably why so many people, you know, I say most people with type 2 diabetes are also really dealing with um, being overweight or obese 
it's very it's very frustrating. A lot of I've had a lot of people say, I really don't eat that much. I don't eat um, the, enough to be this fat. You know, when they have type two diabetes, and um, I think it's just that you know, their insulin levels just so elevated that it doesn't allow them to lose weight. It keeps that fat stored. It, isn't so that Mary, frustrating? <laughs> yeah, so frustrating. Two questions come yeah. to mind. Um, let's mm-hmm. let's let's talk about. Uh, some of the research with brain tumors and brain cancer, oh, yes. since this is a challenge I'm dealing yeah. with personally. But let's talk about yeah. how ketogenic, ketogenic diet is, is a key player for those people to reverse their brain tumors and brain cancers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So at this conference, they talked about that for several hours. We had a number of speakers that spoke about that. So this was um, Dr. Tom Seafried at Boston College. Um, he's actually a geneticist, and um, you know, there's this theory that genetic mutations are what causes cancer, and he said that he doesn't believe that. <laughs> you know, um, basically what happens in cancer cells, they, the, the um, mitochondria, you know, produce ATP, and they, you know, glucose will enter the mitochondria, but the mitochondria become defective. They're dysfunctional, and glucose isn't metabolized the normal way cancer cells are very greedy for glucose. They love glucose. Some cancer cells take up 200 times as much glucose as a normal cell. And, mm-hmm. um, but they don't, very few cancer types of cancer can use ketones as a fuel. So the idea that he had was to use a ketogenic diet, a very high fat, very low carb diet, um, to try to starve the tumor, basically. Um, if, if, you keep the blood sugar very low, um, it could, you know, the idea was that it would help prevent the cancer from growing and maybe even shrink it. And um, the other cells can use ketones. Basically, all the cells except the cells in the liver can use ketones. They're made in the liver, so it's good that the liver doesn't use them. Otherwise, it wouldn't get anywhere else. Mm-hmm. But um, so he um, first, uh, he published a case report, and it was a lady that had glioblastoma. And she um, had kind of on her own started doing a ketogenic diet, and her tumor shrunk so much they couldn't even see it anymore on the MRI <laughs> after she'd been on the diet for a while. It was quite a large tumor. Um, and then um, she didn't survive, but at some point she actually relaxed her diet. I think she thought that she was good, that that was it, you know. Mm-hmm. And she mm-hmm. it did come back, and she did pass away from it. But and it, it basically showed that, that this idea worked, you know, um, could work. And then, you know, there have been quite a, you know, quite a few studies and a whole lot of individuals that have done this. And I've met some of them at these conferences, you know, people that have had glioblastoma that have now um, been able to control it for years. Um, it might not be completely gone, but I kind of think of it as slowing down the progression and maybe even controlling it controlling the growth, you know, keeping it under control, you know, with the ketogenic diet. And so now they've been looking at other, you know, types of cancer, too. There are more than three dozen studies just recently when I looked it up for various types of cancer that they're studying using the ketogenic diet. But, you know, most of them are combining it with the other standard of care treatments. Um, And like, you know, for example, if surgery is the best approach, you know, to a cancer, um, the ketogenic diet could help shrink it, 
you know, especially like a brain tumor, you think how delicate the brain tissue is all around it. And, you know, if you can shrink the tumor, it could be easier to access, you know, to remove it surgically. Um, and that would be true for other types of cancer as well. Um, yeah, uh, there's been a study of women uh, with breast cancer and women, the women who have the highest blood glucose levels survive the least, <laughs> least long period mm-hmm. of time. People with women with lower, you know, with low blood sugars tend to survive longer. I mean, that just gives you, you a know, clue right there, you know. That, and that's amazing, Mary, because so many mm-hmm. people are being encouraged these days and there's some new documentaries coming out mm-hmm. talking about how important it is to, um, you know, have an uh, all-plant-based diet and, um, mm-hmm. you know, have, you know, eat, eat, eat lots of veggies, have fruits, I don't know, got some carbs, but basically the vegan vegetarian path, mm-hmm. would that be a risk factor? Would that enable people to get into ketosis eating that kind of uh, dietary program? What are your thoughts um, about that? It would probably be really hard to do it if you're eating a lot of fruit. Uh, vegan diet, it's kind of tough, too, because you're getting all of your protein from plants. And um, legumes, you know, are, you know, very, you know, high in protein, but they're also very high in carbs. And uh, maybe about half the carb is fiber, which is a good thing, but I, I think it's really difficult. Uh, I think it's possible, though. I mean, you would have to really, really plan the meals, you know, with a vegan diet, and you would have to eat enough oil to compensate for the carbohydrate, you know, um, basically um, to, you know, the more fat you eat, the higher your ketone levels get, you know, basically the, the, the more fat and less carb you eat. But there's really a spectrum of diets in between. So you could be eating 60 or 65% fat and be in ketosis. It just wouldn't be as great as if you're eating 90% fat. So, um, kind of a, an easy way to tell, let's say you're looking at a package <laughs> or just looking at the macronutrients that are in the food. You can add the carbs and the protein together. You add that together. And then if that is less than the grams of fat in the diet, then it's keto. You know, basically, if you consistently would eat that way, you could stay in, in at least mild ketosis, mild to moderate ketosis. So, yeah, so basically you add the grams of protein plus the grams of carbs. And then look at the grams of fat. If the grams of fat is greater than the combination of the fat and the or, or the, the carbs and the protein, then, you know, it's keto. Um, so, you know, somebody that is vegan, you know, they can try to calculate that. They would have to eat enough fat to compensate for the carbohydrates. So um, yeah. I think it would be very hard for them to do a 90% fat diet and get enough protein in their diet. So, um, you know, um, then, I, 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 excuse me, just let me just say while I get a chance, um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. trying to get into ketosis by eating fat doesn't necessarily mean you actually maintain ketosis, which is why mm-hmm. I started using a, a meter. So I do this meter mm-hmm. every every morning that is, mm-hmm. works with blood, test your blood, 
to see what your ketones mm-hmm. and what your glucose levels are, which is um, yeah. a very visual way to see how well you are doing. You just can't assume if you eat more fat and less carbs, you're going to go into mm-hmm. this ketosis state, right? You really need some right. way to monitor to mature it. Yeah. And it can take um, a few days, even a week or a week and a half to really get your levels up there. It doesn't happen like, you know, with one day of doing it. It might, might a little bit the next day, you know, but it, um, as you, um, fast or do a ketogenic diet, the longer you're on it, the higher the ketone levels will get. As long as you're consistent, you have to be consistent with every single meal, every snack. If you eat a high carb snack that has no fat with it, <laughs> it'll take you out of ketosis and then you're kind of back to square one. So, I think a lot of people don't understand, like, you know, that the people that have um, um, epilepsy and also, you know, people who are doing this for cancer, um, they do, they have to really pretty strictly calculate each meal, you know, so that there is more fat than grams of carbohydrate and protein. And, you know, the carbohydrate, to get into really high ketone levels, which um, many people believe, you know, for cancer and for epilepsy is necessary. You know, they literally weigh, they get a digital scale and they weigh every little bit of food, you know, to make sure that they're getting that, you know, um, what they call a ketogenic ratio, the high ratio of fat to protein plus carbs. Um, so, um, it's a, in, in a way, it depends, how strict you need to be depends on what you're using it for, I think. You know, in many ways, um, you know, I think, you know, like for Alzheimer's disease, I, I try to think of what's reasonable for the long haul for people to be expected to do and how old they are <laughs> um, may factor into it. You know, like somebody that's been eating a high-carb diet their entire life in their 70s, I think it may be very hard, and especially if they're already having cognitive issues. I think it might be very difficult to maintain a super strict 90% fat, you know, um, ketogenic diet. Um, so trying to make it reasonable, you know, maybe 65 or 70% fat and just greatly reducing, you know, maybe eating a couple tiny servings of whole grain rice or something like that, you know, just <laughs> to make it a little um, easier for the long haul. <laughs> Yeah, right. A tablespoon or two. I, I literally, I take, um, I have a, I have this spoon that's like, a, it's two tablespoons. It's an eighth of a cup. <laughs> I, I use that to measure out my whole grain rice, you know, sometimes. And I don't eat it every day. I just kind of have it here and there. And, um, the same thing, you know, like I'll have, I like oatmeal, you know, and I, I make it a kind of a keto oatmeal. I, um, I'll cook like a half cup of, you know, the dry um, steel-cut oatmeal, whole grain, and uh, but what comes out of it, I divide it into six custard cups, so I mean, it's like um, a small cup, and then I add coconut oil to it, I add chia seeds, sunflower seeds, you know, that, that, which are quite high in fat and have a lot of nutrients in them, and some grated unsweetened coconut. And um, and then when I eat it, I, I put, like, a tablespoon of cream in it. <laughs> so it'll have, like, maybe 12 <laughs> grams of carbs, and a lot of it's fiber. Uh, you know, a good amount of the carb is fiber. 
and then but much more fat, you know, than um than carbohydrates. So that's something that I have every now and then as an idea of, you know, just something that does have carbs in it. And yeah. I just want to say, I think the point, one point we have to emphasize is fat does not make you fat and carbs do not make right. you thin. So exactly. That's a, exactly. That's, that's overturning yeah. our, our programming and our brainwashing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it is. It is. It's completely the opposite of what we were taught all those years. And, um, well, and fruits, too. I mean, some are very, very high in sugar. And there's some that are low sugar, like berries, blueberries, strawberries tend to be, you know, relatively low in sugar. So, like, um, I know the dietitians quite well who have been teaching the ketogenic diet for children with, and adults with epilepsy for years. And, you know, they usually will work in a few berries, you know, like maybe um, six or eight, you know, blueberries. They literally measure them on a scale, you know, to make sure that they stay within the carb limit. They try to maybe limit to 10 or 15 grams of carbs a day. But to work a little bit of that in, you know, so berries are probably the easiest, you know, low-sugar fruit. Um, and then, like, apricots are supposed to be very low in sugar, but you might need a half of an apricot. I mean, for people that just really want to have some kind of fruit, um, there's just ways to deal with it. Mary, you don't need Mary. a big pile of anything on your plate. <laughs> and, Mary, we're, we're coming to the end, so I want you to talk about yeah. your fourth book. Can we say a little bit about Clearly Keto for Healthy Brain Aging and Alzheimer's oh, Prevention? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This this book, <laughs> this was my pandemic project. Um, when I realized it wasn't going to last only three or four weeks like we first thought, I started writing. I thought, <laughs> okay, I'm going to write another book. So this one, it's really long, but um, I, it's really all about – uh, it, it explains the problem with diabetes and insulin resistance and what's going on in in the um, the brain as we age. And this problem with the energy and Alzheimer's actually happens um, to a lesser degree in people as they age. In the 70s, people are not getting enough energy in their brain for what their brain needs. It's called a brain energy gap. And this gets worse and worse if you have mild cognitive impairment. I mean, it goes from, it's like 7 to 9% a deficit in energy if you're in your 70s and you're normal. You know, you seem to be functioning cognitively normal, normally, um, but it goes to about 10 or 12% if you have mild cognitive impairment and 20% gap in energy that your brain needs. You know, so um, I talk all about that and about this problem of insulin resistance and the problems with ultra-processed foods and getting too much sugar and that I talk about um, basically kind of a Mediterranean-style diet. I call it Mediterranean-style because it's really all over the world. It's not just the Mediterranean, but it's a whole food diet. That's what it is. It's basically eating whole foods, what the importance is of each food group and how to work them into your diet. I have a diet plan in here, but then that's just maybe 40% of the book, and the rest of it, there are many other lifestyle modifications that people can make to prevent Alzheimer's. And um, dementia, you know, as they get older, they, they uh, believe now that somewhere around 30 to 40 percent of cases of Alzheimer's and dementia could be eliminated through healthy lifestyle choices. So this is these are things like getting wow. adequate amount of sleep and not too much sleep, controlling your blood pressure, um, 
being evaluated and treated for sleep apnea if you have it. That's a known cause of dementia, sleep apnea that's untreated. Um, and, you know, I go into, um, like, foods to avoid. <laughs> um, high little lake acid, these are um, polyunsaturated fatty acids that um, seem to be highly inflammatory. Um, nitrosamine compounds, these are uh, things that are added to foods to help preserve them. Uh, it's in processed, like, bacons, processed meats, uh, processed cheeses, certain beers. You know, they can cause brain insulin resistance. Um, and um, you know, just a whole slew of things like that, getting more physical activity. And just I have su several different ways for people at different ages, you know, to be able to do that. And so there's a whole lot more to this book uh, beyond what I had written about yeah. before, which mainly focused on, you know, Alzheimer's. And so um, yeah, it's I you know, I, we're we're right at the end of the show, so I want to name that book yeah. again, Clearly Keto for Healthy Brain Aging and Alzheimer's Prevention. It's a must book for mm -hmm. anyone who is dealing with, you know, memory loss or depression or dementia mm -hmm. or just concerns about not being as sharp as you normally are or if you're dealing right. with health crises or diabetes, right? Anyone who wants to get healthy really needs to understand this keto world that we're talking about. So clearly yeah. keto for a healthy brain aging and Alzheimer's prevention by my guest, Dr. Mm -hmm. Mary Newport. And your mm -hmm. website is Coconut Ketones. Is that correct, Mary? Yeah, yeah it's Coconut Ketones. Okay. It's C-O-C-O-N-U-T-K-E-T-O-N-E-S dot com. There's no Y in ketones. <laughs> a lot of people try yeah, to put a yeah. Y in there. No, yeah, no, and, um, no I Y. And I have a ton of information. There's a way to contact um Contact us through if you have questions or, you know, that kind of thing on the website. You can contact us through that website and just a whole lot of information I've been working on and adding to this website since 2008. So, yeah. Well, you know, Mary, I, I just have to, I have to say heartfelt gratitude to you for your work, your mission in life, to the major changes you're making in people's well-being. And it's just such a pleasure and honor to have you here on the show today. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Cheryl. <laughs> I really appreciate your helping to spread this <laughs> message. <laughs> yes, I'm very passionate like you right now. <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah. to all of you listening, um, please join me every week. Uh, we have fantastic conversations like this, empowering you with uh, truthful information. Until next time, always honor the wisdom of your feminine self. Bye for now.